Hi, I'm João Cachulo and I'm co-host of a radio show called Time Out in the Portuguese radio station Foz do Mondego. I have the incredible pleasure of having with me today Mariana Semkina from Russian duo I Am The Morning, who have released just recently their wonderful and widely acclaimed new album called The Bell. Mariana, thank you so much for granting me this opportunity to talk to you, not just about the new album, but also about you as an artist and as a human being concerned about this crazy world we're living in, to put it mildly. It's quite a privilege, so thank you very much once again. Well, thank you for having me. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be that exciting as you think, but uh, oh, I'm <laughs> I'll sure try to you do will. my best. <laughs> So I have to ask you, and I don't want to jump ahead too much as I want to talk about the new album in more detail shortly, but how are you feeling? I mean, the album came out two weeks ago as we record this to an impressive number of glowing reviews, completely deserved, I must say. So have you had the chance to take it all in and relish this moment? Uh, no, <laughs> I've been, I've been so busy with like all of the admin stuff around the band that I, it's actually a great disappointment to me because I would love to just pause for a second and embrace the moment and think about how amazing it is that the results of our work are finally available for everyone. Naturally. But, um, modern musician has so much responsibilities, uh, that it's just impossible to, Enjoy anything you're doing anymore. I'm being very existential right now, but <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. So that kind of ties into the first actual question I wanted to ask you. But before that, let me just try and do a very brief retrospective of the last 10 years for those who haven't been following you. You are a self-taught singer and the owner of a beautiful voice. And back in 2010, you formed I Am The Morning with Gleb Koliadin, a virtuoso classical pianist. Your debut album came out two years later, and in the space of a little over six years, you released two more widely acclaimed studio albums, one live album and a recorded performance on Blu-ray last year, filmed at a beautiful location in Norway. You had names like Gavin Harrison and Colin Edwin from Porcupine Tree and Marius Duda from Riverside, featuring on your 2016 release, Lighthouse, which won Album of the Year in that year's Progressive Music Awards. You've collaborated just recently with Jordan Ruthers from Dream Theatre in his new solo album, and you have just released an extraordinary new album with I Am To Morning called The Bell, which raises the bar once again in this genre of chamber prog 
which I think we can say that you own, essentially. You are very original and unique sounding in this musical landscape that is sorely lacking in originality nowadays. And you've also been described many times as one of the most exciting new bands in the progressive scene. So, first of all, these are wonderful achievements and something you have all the right to be proud of. But it also begs the question, are you living the dream or is it not as simple as that? I don't believe in living a dream. I believe that once you achieve the dream that you thought you had, you already have different dreams. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's constantly chasing something that you are yet to achieve. But then when you're achieving that new thing, you're kind of looking for something else. I don't know. It's uh, it's a constant search. And uh, I must say it's impressive how well prepared you are. And I wouldn't be able... <laughs> oh, please. I wouldn't be able to tell things about our band as good as you just did. Like, <laughs> Well, none of those were used to me, but... <laughs> I wouldn't be able to recite our timeline as well as you. Just did a little bit of research is all. <laughs> so, yeah, my question had to do with this common duality between the dream of being a successful artist and the struggle that bands, especially smaller bands like yours, have to go through to, to kind of stay afloat. Or, in other words, when the pleasure of making art gradually turns into work, which is obviously less exciting. So... What was your strategy so far to try and maintain some sort of balance in in this regard? Well, my strategy from the very beginning was to not uh, put too much pressure on my music career as of to paying the bills, because I do have a daily job in IT. uh, And this is what actually makes sure that I have a roof above my head and food to eat. And uh, what I'm asking from music is for it to actually pay for itself but because the scale of our project grows it becomes more and more difficult but the band kind of grows too so it's like this constant chase what will win like yeah trying to find some sort of balance yeah it's an exhausting work it's overwhelming at times but then you arrive to sort of a destination and you see how people appreciate the results and it makes you feel kind of i don't know satisfied in a way or it's very rewarding, I think. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, sometimes you can be just too tired to appreciate this in full. But uh, as is the case now, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not the fun person to co- have a conversation with right now because I'm just <laughs> so busy, so busy all the time, and so kind of existential that, yeah. <laughs> it will probably it will probably get you like make you very depressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm usually depressed enough already, so don't worry. So, um, take me back to the beginning. Where do you come from musically? What are your earliest musical memories, or at least those that have shaped you in any way or form? I always gave credit for my sort of musical education to my parents in terms of they never let me study music properly my mom was forced to go to musical school by her mom which uh, made her hate music so when once I asked to let me go and study I think I was around five years old she said that I I won't be able to and she doesn't want to spoil my childhood (laughs) Uh, so I did not get musical education, but they also kind of 
taught me to love this very specific type of music because they played Pink Floyd to me all the time when oh, I was amazing. very yeah. little, when I was a baby practically. Um, so I'm pretty sure that this has shaped me in many ways, especially seeing the wall before I go to bed when I was five years old. Um, That's quite impressive, I must say. Um, I don't know. A lot of people would question their, you know, parental strategies. But... Uh, I mean, this made me who I am, so I'm not complaining. Exactly, yeah. And arguably, I think they did a pretty good job, if you'd ask me. <laughs> so, besides the music you were exposed to, um, how was it like growing up in Russia? Or, in other words, how did the social context of your upbringing shape you as a person and, and eventually as an artist? Um, I think the main thing that I am getting out of there is this uncontrollable desire to leave this country <laughs> <laughs> because um, the cultural context that I was growing up with was very, you know, limited mm -hmm. and very, very poor. So I did not have any friends that listened to the same music that I did. I did not have any friends that were interested in the same types of art that I was. And it was just very sad. And now with this newly acquired freedom to go to other countries, I'm embracing it all. And this is part of what influenced the bell so much, I think, is this complete overwhelming interest in uh, all things art and culture. So, yeah, I was um, a very introspective teenager, a very closed... I mean, I was social, but then I didn't find satisfaction in the people I had around me because none of them really shared my interests. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that. Yeah, they were they were very lovely people, and I still remember them with like this nostalgic warmth. But uh, all of those discoveries that I made in like the the world of art and culture, I made all of that by myself, and I had no one to share them with. Um, maybe this is part of why I started writing music, is because this was some sort of a I don't know, a very good source of inspiration for myself and also something to give to, mm -hmm. um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 it definitely does. And I'm sure that many of those listening can, can certainly relate to that. So then, how did you and Glab meet? Was it pure happenstance? Were you childhood friends or schoolmates? Or, or, or is there an exciting origin story that we don't know about? Uh, there is nothing exciting about us. <laughs> uh, no, we, we couldn't have been school or childhood friends because I only moved to St. Petersburg uh, like fairly recently. And we met pretty soon after I moved cities and came here. I got a piano for my apartment uh, that I was renting back in the days. And uh, one of our common friends introduced us thinking that we might actually make a good combo. You know, because mm -hmm. his band was falling apart. My musical project was a wreck. <laughs> so we kind of got together. I invited him over for tea and he, he immediately saw the instrument, started playing and that was it. <laughs> As he does, yeah. Yeah, so um, we started writing together pretty much instantly. It, it all started like we wanted to warm up by playing covers and I think we covered Bjork or something like that. Uh, but uh, I think even on the first or second meeting, we already started writing songs that eventually were included into the first album that we recorded. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very constructive social um, experience. Indeed, yeah. And I was precisely going to ask you about your creative process. So how did you find that common ground that eventually led to all this beautiful music you've made together? 
we don't really have much of a common ground except for our love for music and writing music yeah. because our backgrounds are completely different. Our interests are also entirely different and like our range of responsibilities is different. Our social circles are different. Everything is different. But um, it's amazing how we managed to click when it came to music because uh, for both him and myself, it's kind of a natural state of things to be writing. But for him, for him, it came, well, obviously he's like, he's extremely talented, but he was also educated to do so. Right. Um, and for myself, it's just, it just comes out of nowhere. It's just a flow of subconsciousness, I guess. And innate talent, I would say. Well, uh, it questionable, <laughs> <laughs> but it it works out. It works out really well together because uh, I'm a bit chaotic, but he's very structured and very logical thinking when it comes to music, and he understands everything what's going on, and I'm just kind of floating around. <laughs> you sometimes call him the mathematician, right? Sort of. Uh, it, it's I have to. Uh, make a disclaimer that everything that I say about the band, Gleb might have a completely opposite opinion on it. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so that's everything. Everything kind of said here is my opinion, like my personal, obviously, yeah, uh, side of things. Uh, yeah, but so lately we've been only working remotely because I've been out of the country a lot, mm -hmm. and even when I'm in the country, we don't really have this need to see each other that much. We pretty much exchange, you know, files online and just kind of work with whatever we have. That's becoming more and more common nowadays, isn't it? And I, I wonder if that's in any way detrimental to the creative process. I think, I think it's a great blessing and a curse at the same time, because for me, music is supposed to be like a social experience as well. Yeah, there used to be this kind of idea that bands would get together and start jamming and things would spontaneously come out of that. Well, we do we do that too when we can, when we kind of we're when we're in the same place and we both have time because our schedules are kind of busy. And half, maybe one third of the material for the album came up this way, while us being in the room with an instrument and just kind of playing around. And then we just kind of um, add finishing touches online when he records his parts and I record my parts on top of his. Yeah. Um, but um, it gets more and more, you know, this. Uh, new world sort of thing and remote uh, work on music material. So he just sends me a lot of files because he has like this endless folders of his drafts and sketches because he's like an unstoppable writing machine. Mm -hmm. And then I pick the ones that I like. So say the title track on this album was entirely written. So that was just, it was just like his sort of sketch, yeah. the piano part. Uh, and it made me so very sad. He started playing it to me, but I was like in the state of very bad depression. And it just was so sad that I just started crying every time he started playing it. He, he was like, okay, I get it. I get it. <laughs> uh, so he stopped suggesting we make it. And this was the last um, track added to the album when I kind of was in the mood and I got it. And I just, uh, I wrote all of the vocal parts from scratch, from start to finish of the song, and I just sent it over to him. And he was like, wow, I didn't think you're going to use this track. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm very proud of it, actually. I'm very happy with how it came out. I think it's very good. It is, definitely. You should be. So let us talk about the new album for a bit. And the first thing that strikes you is, is the gorgeous artwork created by Konstantin Nagishkin, who's a friend of yours, right? Um, yeah, he's an old friend of ours. We've known him since ages ago because he, he was the only artist who ever did any like artwork for us, 
except for like all the graphic designers that we use for layouts and shirt mm-hmm. designs. But uh, all of the album art, that was all his uh, work. And I'm very pleased that we keep uh, to this scenario because I like the, you know, unity, like the, this feeling. Yeah, there's, there's definitely mm. a unity to it. And I, and I appreciate that as well. And it's an absolutely beautiful cover. And so for those who haven't seen it, it depicts a kind of graveyard a very beautiful one actually it, it's a bad dis- it's a bad description of the album you should say the cover art is uh watercolor very colorful and very sunny with a lot of flowers indeed I- i'm sorry you're absolutely <laughs> right yeah <laughs> which also happens which to also be a happens graveyard. to be a graveyard exactly <laughs> So this grave in the cover art has a bell attached to it, the titular bell, which has nothing to do with our common idea of of church tower bells at all, but something way more interesting and macabre. So can you tell us a little bit about it and what led to this being, let's say, the visible face of the album? Um, Well, yeah, so uh, the bell depicted on the cover is a safety coffin bell, which was like a, a thing that existed in 19th century in both America and England, which I'm more interested in. And um, it was a precaution made for uh, people that were terribly, terribly afraid of being buried alive. Because thanks to Edgar Allan Poe, a lot of people got this strange phobia of being buried alive in their sleep. Yeah, he he frequently approached this subject, namely in the premature burial and the fall of the House of Usher, amongst some other of his short stories, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was... uh, He's quite amazing, actually. I really enjoy his works. But um, so people came up with this, with a lot of ideas, actually, against premature burials or also um, body snatchers. So basically, they had this uh, bell on their gravestone with a thread attached to their arm in a coffin. So if they wake up in the coffin and discover that they've been buried alive, they can ring a bell. And they were like special attendants in the cemeteries, making sure that... Like, Wait, so, yeah, I was going to ask you, so who was supposed to actually hear the bell ringing? Yeah, there were there, there were special cemetery attendants everywhere huh. uh, who were supposed to keep track of that and also the body snatchers, because that was like a very common problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I find it beautifully ironic, actually, that according to, well, the records, no one was actually saved by the safety coffin bell. Yeah. Yeah, but, that's the irony of it. Yeah, and I really love it. But we thought that this would be a very appropriate face for an album filled with stories of death and dying from Victorian England. Mm-hmm. And which would also at the same time translate this nice idea that no matter how bad you feel. And so it's never too late to call for help. Exactly. Basically, because, you know, um, we try to not be morbidly sad all the time. <laughs> There's a sliver of hope, at least. Yeah, we, we like this duality about everything we do. It's like multi-layered thing with a lot of meanings and senses and afterthoughts. Um, and it's something that I always enjoy in other people's music. It's just you keep discovering new things after like a hundredth listen. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing over here in the lyrics and in the music. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and, and whilst on this subject of safety coffins, I, I also recall as a kid seeing an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I believe it was the 1985 updated version of the original series, where there was an episode called The Final Escape, which played precisely into these fears of being buried alive. And it had never occurred to me that that was even a thing when I saw it at the time. And it has haunted me ever since. <laughs> uh, and I think it was right after watching that episode that I first decided that I wanted to be cremated because the idea of being buried suddenly seemed preposterous and, and, and I was only 11 years old at the time. And, and it's also amazing that this system of safety coffins was, even decades after its invention, still subject to improvements, revisions and updated versions during the 1800s, namely to avoid what they called false positives. <laughs> and there is, in fact, a modern version of a safety coffin, patented in 1995 by someone named Fabrizio Caselli, which I find extraordinary. It has an emergency alarm, a two-way microphone and speaker, a torch, oxygen tank, heartbeat sensor and heart stimulator. <laughs> so I, I guess if you added some food and water, you could actually spend a few days down there in peace and quiet. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't either, to be perfectly honest. So um, just out of curiosity, have you ever found one of these bell-enhanced graves, so to speak, in your frequent travels through cemeteries, which I know you're very passionate about? I haven't found any uh, safety coffin bells on the cemeteries, but I did find a few in museums in different countries. Okay. Because I'm like a passionate lover of art. I go to all sorts of museums, except for the modern art. Right. Because <laughs> I'm a little bit of a snob <laughs> when it comes to this. But uh, I found a safety coffin bell in the funeral museum in Vienna. Yeah. Which is an amazing place and I really loved it. Mm. And the cemetery itself is gorgeous. Uh, and then there was a beautiful safety coffin bell with a little wooden model of like the person buried alive in uh, uh, Berlin Museum of Medicine, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and those little treasures, I wasn't like specifically searching for them. It was just like uh, right in the range of my general interest, which would be Victorian art and death. So you already had an idea that this would be part of the album theme or not at the time? I I would never hope that Gleb would allow uh, a gravestone <laughs> on the cover. So I never seriously thought about that. But when he actually kind of agreed to that, I was just so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you were. He, he's a little bit of a filter for my morbid ideas, because if, if it wasn't for him, all our music videos would be filled with dead birds and dead girls and dead flowers and everything <laughs> dead. Because uh, I guess I... Oof. This is this is my depression manifests itself this way, <laughs> but yeah, he, he's he's a good filter for, for things like that, so we don't go overboard. Right. So speaking of your videos, you sometimes release videos of you in the studio, but we never see Gleb except in the actual promo videos. So where is he? I mean, when does he record these parts, and how involved is he in in the rest of the process? You know, in the arrangements and the production and all that. Well. I'm not sure this is entirely true, actually. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just my impression. Well, the thing is, uh, you saw a lot of videos with me in the studio because you were on Patreon. Yeah, exactly. That's why. That's true. Because I, I don't really, we don't really upload a lot of videos like that to Facebook because we're just so engaged in the process of actual recording that we don't have mm -hmm. time and space to think about it. We yeah. did get uh, some people with cameras in the studio while we've been recording grand piano and vocals, but. Uh, mm -hmm. 
we haven't found a reason to use those recordings just yet. But uh, anyway, yeah, Gleb is very much uh, in the process when we kind of uh, makes and master, well, makes at least the album. So he, he's, he has a very good understanding of what he wants in terms of his arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, so our sound engineer, Vlad, is very used to constantly making changes to the mixes according to our wishes and desires. And yes, and, and speaking of Vlad, I, I must say that it did an amazing job on this album. I, I truly think it's the best you've ever sounded. And, and there's a nariness and a clarity to it where you can perfectly hear every little detail that I find quite remarkable. Yeah, yeah, he's he's wonderful. And one of my favorite things in this band is seeing how everyone I work with evolve throughout the years. So like, mm-hmm. say, Constantine, the artist, for he keeps getting better with every cover. Yeah. And the sound engineer, he keeps getting better with every mix that he does for us. Indeed, yeah. And, and, and I think it's quite remarkable in, in the new album in particular, how everything came together in a, in a seemingly very focused way. And, and the end result is this concise and beautifully put together collection of songs wrapped in a lovely package with, with an incredible attention to every little detail. And, and what's also remarkable, and I noticed it right away with the very first song, Freak Show, is, is how the musical palette had expanded to incorporate all sorts of instrumentation and, and experimentation. So uh, was there a conscious effort to approach composition and arrangement differently this time, or, or is this a natural evolution of the band's sound and, and the kind of sign of things to come? I think that the thing that makes uh, the per- the growth, the professional growth of the band noticeable is the personal growth of each member separately. Mm-hmm. So, which is kind of natural for creative people because creative people, they never stop in their development. They keep searching for things. They keep learning new things, developing and broadening their horizons and mastering their skills and abilities. And as a result of this, we see how... The, the band keeps getting, well, maybe not better, but something else, something different. Definitely better. Uh, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure there would be some people out there that would say that they don't enjoy the bell as much as they did the previous albums because the bell is more unconventional, I believe. It is, yeah. And it's 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 completely unapologetic. Everyone, everyone keeps saying that the pressure on us is so big because of our like award-winning previous album. But the truth is, the pressure on us is big because we keep wanting more from ourselves, not because people are expecting more. Exactly. And uh, we would be developing anyway, no matter the expectations or the awards we got previously. And also, everyone thinks that we want to appeal to the public, especially after having won the album of the year with the Lighthouse, but. We never had a single thought about, will people like this? We only had the thoughts of, is this what complements music? Is this what the song asks for? And uh, we ended up in this complete weird mixture of genres. Well, it's like... It's unapologetic. As it should be, and, and you have all the reason to be proud of it. It's it's the culmination of nearly 10 years of artistic growth, and, and it shows. It's, it's a fantastic album. And... It's also very profound thematically and about much more than the fear of being buried alive. (laughs) There's an overarching concept that deals with the themes of human cruelty, the pain it causes and different ways we respond to and cope with it. 
And it's also, and, and I'm quoting here from your own words in the press release, aesthetically based on themes taken from Victorian England's art and culture, but more in a way of turning our attention to the fact that, at its core, humankind isn't making much progress in terms of emotional maturity. And I'm not as well versed in the subject of Victorian England as you are, but I believe there are quite a few parallels between that era and, and the present day, and, and we'll get into that in a moment. But it's that last bit about emotional maturity that interests me particularly, and, and it's very timely, I would say, because I think we are failing miserably as a species <laughs> to, to live up to our best ethical and moral values and, and those of respect and appreciation for each other that, that should by now be taken for granted granted, but which we seem to be evolving, or, or should I rather say devolving, further and further away from. So can you give me a bit of insight into how the Victorian themes played into your, at times very bleak, but still hopeful, take on, on the society of today? Um, well, so during my travels, I've been studying a lot of uh, like Victorian history and art. And uh, what appeared really really interesting to me is that our perception of Victorian people is very different from what they were actually like. And uh, I kept getting this feeling that modern people, modern society just wants to believe desperately how much progress they made, how much better they are than people that came before. Um, and this this arrogance and this kind of this condescending attitude yeah. just keeps keep, keeps bothering me so much and um as it should as it should well i mean yeah there are like uh, undeniable progress that we've made in uh, certainly certainly yeah well like uh, yeah in technological progress and medicine and like everything like a lot of a lot of things but uh what actually matters is the attitude of people towards each other absolutely and uh how humane we are and uh, how kind we are to each other and i'm kind of sort of noticing that we didn't come so far like even i i always make this example of this like song that you mentioned before the freak show yeah it's, it's about the freak shows that people in 19th century used to have uh, so they went there to entertain themselves by looking at crippled people say all sorts of all sorts of crippled people and like it's almost like an obsession with the, these kind of things then yeah victorian society was very obsessed with all things kind of strange and morbid uh mm -hmm. and, and and i realized that we we are very similar to this with our kind of like mass media obsession with yeah. the tragedies and yeah tragedy <laughs> and, and and misery and conflict and this sensationalistic disturbing manipulative grip on society which which is kind of a freak show in itself i would say yes it is so this was just one of the many many examples of that i that i that i've been thinking about and i thought that maybe it's better to not be talking about this directly, mm -hmm. you know, because this sort of social poetry doesn't seem appealing to me because, like, that would be more appropriate to, I don't know, punk rock or something. Yeah, yeah. Those angry boys that yeah. yell about government. Um, so I decided to take a little kind of more poetical detour and arrive to the point where I can compare and uh, just, just make people think about this. 
say, uh, yeah, and it, it's really interesting because, say, like Victorian England didn't have anti entire immigration laws, mm-hmm. say, but look at what is happening now. Precisely. Yeah, like the, the 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 crime rate, despite us thinking that London was like such a terrible place and was dangerous, was actually not that big. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, especially if you compare it with nowadays. And so it's just, of course, there were like a lot of really bleak things happening back in the days, like uh, the fact that the prostitution was like the most uh, popular thing for a woman to do. Right. Or... Uh, I don't know a lot a lot of that or the fact that to die you just had to breathe in in London because it was so polluted and people were dumping their waste in rivers um but um people just seem it seems like we are just the same people as we used to be only more arrogant and self-absorbed um yes I, I agree and and it was also a time of great technological change which in turn has a profound impact on on society and with the appearance of, of railways and the telegraph, for instance, the, the notion of an interconnected and globalized world starts to form. And, and I see a very clear parallel with, with what happened in the last couple of decades, but now on a much bigger scale. Well, they pretty much built our world for us. Everything that we are doing now, well, most of the things that we are doing now, they were the first to do. Indeed. So, uh, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I just The thing is being a computer engineer and and I know you also work for an IT company as your day job. And in in my case having followed the world of technology very closely for for more than 30 years, I've always felt very hopeful about the role of technology in, in the progress and evolution of humankind. And, and and in particular, I've witnessed the birth of the internet as we know it, and, and we were all very idealistic at the time. We, we genuinely believed it would eventually bring the whole world together in this noble quest for knowledge and equality. But while some of that is certainly true, or, or at least a little better, I think more than anything it paved the way for an exponential growth of hatred and disrespect. And, and I don't think we were ready for this at all, you know. To, to be connected on a global scale and having to deal on a daily basis with, with points of view that differ from our own, we, we were definitely not ready for that. I think the worst thing that came with internet is this seeming anonymity for people that are just so fulfilled with misery and anger that they just need to throw it into somebody else to kind of make feel a little bit better. This is this is like this is what I feel what is happening is with all of those people that kind of troll and harass people online and cause so much, you know, misery to the ones that are less thick skinned, like say I'm not thick skinned at all. Um, is that because they're also sad and lonely and miserable, yeah, yeah. but they don't really have courage to actually go out and speak. Yeah, and, and unless they are behind this veil of anonymity. Yeah, and this completely, that makes them unstoppable. There are no limits to what these people can do and say until they are like anonymous online and they feel safe behind their computer screen. Yeah, this is something that I keep thinking about, and, and, and I can't help feeling disappointed with the way people interact socially nowadays, in, in, in a world that is now seen almost exclusively in terms of black and white, where there's no longer a place for nuance or, or for simply not having an opinion. You're either with me or against me, that's, that's the prevalent mentality everywhere. 
So it's no wonder, and, and, and it's something that becomes very apparent once you look beneath the surface, is that despite the inherent beauty of your music, you, you frequently tap into pretty dark and profound subject matters. The themes of dying and drowning frequently come up in your lyrics, and obviously in a very poetic way, but many people wonder where, where does that fascination with death come from? Well, as I said, it's probably my depression manifests itself. Uh, which uh, is in a way, I guess, a coping mechanism because my mental health isn't great. Mm. Uh, so I'm just like taking it all and dumping it all on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I think this is partly something that I inherited from uh, the fact that I'm Russian. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you go read uh, some of like Russian classical literature, um, it's all over about misery and death and pain. And it never and it never really occurred to me that despite trying so hard to run away from this country, it's like rooted deep inside of me and inside the things that I write. And to be honest, I don't think that's the worst part of it. I think like mm. I don't have much against it. I'm fine. I'm, I accept it. Well, I mean, I'm at peace with the fact that I'm Russian mm -hmm. and uh, I'm taking the best things out of it, which is also a fascination with morbid subjects and uh, I guess my willingness to be writing about death. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a coping mechanism. And, and I, I recall this quote from the great James Baldwin, who said, it seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. This uh, kind of aligns really well with my life philosophy, which is like, what's the worth of having anything if you haven't earned it? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess I'm writing about death, about like a way of earning a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God, why am I so bleak? <laughs> oh, I'm more or less the same, to be honest. Well, your listeners are going to be entertained by to really depressed people talking to one another. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we already talked about how the new album explores the themes of human cruelty. And in the previous one, Lighthouse, you went deep into the subject of mental health. And that album resonated with me and, and I'm sure a lot of people out there because of that. Unfortunately, I think mental health is still a topic that is not talked about enough, or at least I feel that a lot of people are not aware of how widespread it is, or, or they simply dismiss it as something which it is not. And we were just talking about depression in this jokingly way, but it's extremely important that people have the notion that it affects an extraordinary number of people in every walk of life, and those that fall victim to depression and ultimately to suicide are not just a few famous people that you hear about in the news, but it's a worldwide issue that affects around 800,000 individuals every year. So I think you put it really well in an interview you gave not too long ago when you said, no matter how low you are or desperate you think your situation is, you can still call for help. But more than that, you have to call for help if you need it. Yeah, I think... Um... I, I've been trying to encourage people to talk uh, for for quite a few years now. Like with Lighthouse, this was pretty much the main the main reason I went into the subject was that people if people that feel this way would see that someone else describes their feelings through music, they would feel less alone. Mm -hmm. This is something that music did to me when I was uh, fourteen or fifteen years old, when I desperately needed like someone to listen to, yeah. uh, someone who would listen, who would understand, and then I found solace in other bands. Yeah, 
Um, and I wanted to kind of be this sort of companion for all of those that need company to deal with their struggles. But then I also, it's very important to remember that no one can help you unless you want to be helped. Precisely. And it's very important to make sure that you did all you could because like as much as it is important to seek help when you need it, it's also important to know that probably you're, you're going to be the best help for yourself. You just have to apply kind of, you know, efforts to this and then you have to make sure that you're really prepared to work very hard in order to get better. Indeed. And, and it's also important to know that there is support out there. Oh, there is always. That you can reach out to. There is always, there is always support, but uh, you have to be strong. And I mean, even, even when it comes to therapy, say, um, mm -hmm. it, it's, I discovered that it's an amazing thing. I've been, I've been like in therapy for years and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Mm -hmm. um, that it's a really, really important thing to realize that at this point you need help. So it's time to turn to a professional. But when you go to the professional, you have to be prepared to work very hard because it's not easy. Yeah. It, it will get worse before it will get better. Exactly. So and there's always light. There's, there's always light. And so I'm, I can ramble about that for hours. So stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think what you just said is incredibly valuable. And, and I want to emphasize something you mentioned before, which is that you feel that the biggest impact you can have is through your music. And, and music is indeed a very powerful means to reach an enormous number of people. And it's clear to me that people identify themselves a lot with you and, and the things you sing and write about. And I am certainly one of them. So to have music as a way to spread this kind of message is, I think, a great privilege and, and extremely important. And ultimately, someone will find solace in that music and those words, just like you did at various points in your life. And there's something else I personally relate to in, in a big way in your lyrics and some of your album covers as well which is the recurring theme of water and the ocean or the sea as something you seem to be fascinated about. <laughs> and having lived my whole life near the sea, I, I perfectly understand how important it is, you know, to feel the presence of water around me for, for my mental health and even my sanity. So can you tell me a little bit about how meaningful this is to you? Well, unlike you, I never lived near the sea. Hmm. Or near the ocean. And uh, this is something that always made me sad. Like, I haven't seen the sea until I turned maybe 15. Wow. And I don't really see it very often now even. So that's why that's why I'm planning to move to England. I'm going to live by the sea. Oh, that's lovely. That's <laughs> wonderful. Um, so, and I think, this, I think this is the whole reason. Because I was always fascinated by this concept of this great beautiful water that kind of makes you feel small at the same time but also makes you feel like everything is just so good absolutely <laughs> just because if, if you're there by the sea and you're listening to the waves everything else stops being important that that's definitely true and as you said it's just amazing to be there you know looking at the ocean and listening to the waves crashing it's it's so incredibly peaceful and i i kind of see it as a metaphor for the impermanence of things and, and and something that sort of brings you this sense of renewal which is so beneficial to your mind i think <laughs> Well, but despite not being close to the sea, or, or at least not yet, you've always maintained a remarkable closeness and openness towards your fans, either personally or in social media. And knowing that, like myself, and, and hence the reason for my question, that, that you are an introvert and you sometimes deal with anxiety and self-doubt, 
I wonder how you manage that balance of personal versus public time and, and the occasional or, or maybe not so occasional negativity that, as we talked about, is so prevalent when you're exposed online and, and, and have reached the degree of following that you did. Um, with great difficulty. I can imagine. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not that I have a choice. I, I'm just a tool of, you know, a marketing tool for the band to become better known. And uh, it's part of my responsibilities to be visible on social media because Gleb just kind of removed himself from this part of mm -hmm. Um, and pretty much from everything else that doesn't have anything to do with like writing of the music directly. So you're sort of the public face of the band. Yeah, I'm the kind of public facing side of the duo, as they say. Yeah. Um, and it's fine. And uh, I kind of find solace in talking to our fans and seeing that people enjoy the music and writing all of these messages that they send to me about how important it is for them and how our albums got them through a difficult time, all sort of things like that. So that's part of the thing that actually helps yeah. me. But it can get exhausting sometimes, right? It is mentally draining. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean... You, you keep saying that like I'm active on social media and everything and here I am two weeks after the album was released. I haven't even written a post for my personal page on Facebook about actually releasing an album because I've been so busy doing like social medias for the band, like on all the platforms and sending merch and doing interviews and all of the publicity stuff. Like I wanted to write something, you know, honest and heartfelt about this album, but I'm just so tired. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So let me bring up the topic of being a woman in the music industry, or, or anywhere else for that matter. The truth is that despite recent developments that are hopefully leading to a long overdue change in perception and attitudes, we still live in a world where misogyny is woefully pervasive, where discrimination against women is still the norm, and seeing female artists in the realm of progressive rock in particular is still strangely perceived as an oddity, as an anomaly of sorts. And I must say that this has baffled me for decades, why men have this toxic and disrespectful behaviour, which in a way goes back to the lack of emotional maturity that we talked about. I don't know if it was the fact that, thankfully, my upbringing has made me see everyone as equal in this world from a very early age, irrespective of gender, race or beliefs, but I've always found this persistence of misogyny in particular as something very hard to grasp. And if you had asked me 20 years ago if we would still be talking about this in 2019, I wouldn't believe you. Perhaps naively, I always thought that we would have grown up as a society when we were well into the 21st century. But alas, here we are. So, what has your experience been like in this regard during your time with I Am The Morning and, and your life in general? Well, I have to say that my mostly my experience was rather positive. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, I mean, I can't say that I faced too many problems being a woman, but the ones that I have faced are completely like they drive me up the wall. Yeah. But I also have to say that I realize that men that have problems with women being in a band or in prog genre or in music industry in general, they're just deeply insecure. I think it's down to insecurity in the end. Yeah, I agree. And after realizing that, I stopped worrying about this too much. I mean, they can suit themselves. They can't really get to me. Um, 
most of people around me that I work with are very respectful because otherwise I wouldn't be working with them. Naturally. Sometimes there are, there are sometimes have some hiccups when I realize that I'm repeating the same thing for the fifth time to some guy because I'm a woman or uh, if there is a problem in some process. It's very difficult to me to have a conversation with someone if it's like a very, you know, sensitive subject because... Because a lot of men are still afraid of showing their feelings. No, no, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that if someone is not doing their job properly and I'm telling them off... Oh, right. Uh, they would just dismiss me for being like an over-emotional woman or something like this. So say say we had some troubles in like the business side of the band and I had to have like this very heated argument with someone because that's what that was the only way. Mm -hmm. Like it took me years to resolve this problem and in the end I kind of I reached my limit and but the problem is I was completely dismissed for being a woman because like It's really, it's really kind of bizarre and uh, it makes me very upset because how much longer do we need to be fighting for freaking equality? It's like 21st century. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's something that you learn to live with, uh, but I just want to punch people in the face sometimes. <laughs> Too bad that I can't or yell at them at Twitter, but I'm supposed to kind of maintain the public persona, which is like mildly likable. So I can't yeah, really be and, and people. Starting any kind of argument in social media is, is mostly a futile exercise, I think. It's not about arguing. It's about telling people that they're wrong. Yeah. So like I, I have people on Twitter like saying completely inappropriate things and I'm not afraid of telling them off mm -hmm. but then for a woman it's really easy to kind of gain a reputation of a bitch just because she speaks her mind yeah and like if if a man is doing something like in a very constructive and straightforward way he's a leader he's straightforward and like really good and productive if a woman does that she's bossy and she's a bitch yeah exactly so i mean it's it's like that all over the place it's it like is. that in the business world as well it is that's true and i'm more familiar with the business world obviously and it's no different at all and i'm always reminded of a wonderful essay that a Scottish writer called Matt Gamble wrote a few years ago about misogyny, which I think perfectly encapsulates these ideas. And I'm going to quote him here. Misogyny is an anachronism and is cancerous not just to society, to the workplace, to the economy and the large constructs of humanity, but to the individual people that many of us care most about. It's not an abstract thing to only be debated. It's a real, actual injustice inconceivably prevalent even in our ostensibly most advanced nations. A key goal must be to help make sure that women have positive role models and that those people are celebrated on merit rather than either because of or despite their gender. The same situation men enjoy in every walk of life. Nothing combats discrimination as effectively as an environment in which it seems ludicrously out of touch with reality. <laughs> and He mentions role models, and I think those are very important in all this. I'm, I'm particularly reminded of three front women in the mid-90s who, in my view, paved the way to a revolution in perception about how limited and one-sided the world of metal and prog had been until then. I'm talking, obviously, about Kari Ruslaten with The Third and the Mortal, Anneke van Giesbergen with The Gathering, and Liv Christine with Theatre of Tragedy. So... How important do you think these role models are, both to new female artists and to the general perception towards women in music? I think it is very important because um, you need to have something in front of your eyes to know that everything is possible. So um, 
I like a. I, I was never particularly a fan of this sort of uh, genre, mm -hmm. but Annika was always like a great example for me of someone who worked extremely hard to get yeah. nice things. Uh, like, because talent is a little tiny part of what you need to be successful in the music industry. Most of it is exhausting, exhausting work. And uh, I mean, if you, if you cherish your music, if you care uh, for your music to kind of reach the ears of people that's you that's what you have to do no one is going to do this for you absolutely and like if you want to get something done do it yourself so yeah i agree and especially for women it's very important to see that there are like women out there that are successful in what they do despite all of the misogynistic um patterns that are still existing in the society mm -hmm. um and that no matter how hard everything seems to kind of Hard work is going to conquer everything. You just have to be really, really stubborn. Yeah. Um, so that, that's that been my approach. And I I look at her still as an inspiration because everything she does just feels so kind of heartfelt and sweet and genuine. But at the same time, I see how much she works and I don't understand how she manages to work this hard. Yeah. Um, so it's like so much admiration. Absolutely. I agree. So... Do you see yourself as one, as, as a role model for, let's say, a new generation of bands? Well, I, I wouldn't ever call myself a role model because this would be, you know, immodest. <laughs> um, I know that a, lo a lot of people are sending me messages kind of stating that I am for them, which is incredibly sweet and kind of encouraging too, because this, this is very inspiring, actually, and it kind of gives me energy to keep working as hard as I am working. There are a lot of, like, young frog or just bands here in Russia that look at uh, in the morning as a role model that demonstrates that everything is possible. Yeah. Because when we just started, it seemed like we are in this vacuum and this bubble of Russia, which is impossible to get out of. And yet we managed to do this, even though it took us years. If we were like originated from the UK, our career would have been so much easier. It would have been developing so much faster. Yeah, I can imagine. But I, I keep hearing this from young musicians in Russia that they are kind of following our steps, trying to get out of the country. And because they see us, they know that it is possible. And... Um, it's a great reward for all of the hard work that we do. And a lot of girls are messaging me saying that they, they're looking at how hard I work and they know that they ha if they work hard, they're going to achieve their goals too. And it's just so... That's lovely. That's very sweet. Of course, like the first thing I tell them is to run as far as they can from music industry, <laughs> but they never listen. So the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is your Patreon initiative, which you've launched back in March this year as an attempt to have financial support for your work in music and art and also make it possible to fulfill your desire to move to the UK. And not too long ago, I've watched a documentary about Kate Bush, which is a few years old. It's called The Kate Bush Story, and it's from the BBC. And there are a few artists interviewed throughout the documentary, amongst which David Gilmour, who discovered her at the age of 15, <laughs> and Peter Gabriel, with whom she recorded that famous single Don't Give Up in 1986. And at some point, Peter Gabriel says something about overcoming your lack of confidence, your inner fears, and allowing that powerful self-expression and talent to run free at last. And he said, I'm quoting here, creativity comes from the freedom to fail, and the freedom to fail comes from experimentation, and that's what gives something its individuality. 
And I think her courage, which is the positive way of interpreting it, or the bloody-mindedness, which is the negative, is part of what gives her real value as an artist. Mm. So... I know you had a lot of hesitation before you started your Patreon and you were terrified of how things would go. Uh, and those are very natural and legitimate fears. But have you, in a way, found your freedom to fail in doing this? And with that, allowed yourself to be in the right context to take your creativity to a whole new level and with a wider realm of possibilities? Well, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to achieve that sort of thing. But uh It definitely kind of, it's a great encouragement for me and it's one of the best decisions that I've made in my music career because... I'm very it, glad to hear that, yeah. Yeah, it gives me a lot of motivation to kind of keep going because seeing that there are like a lot of... I don't have like an overwhelming amount of patrons, but still kind of that's more than I could ever hoped for. Yeah. And the fact that I, I did not have any expectations when I started. I uh, The only thought that I had is that okay, I'm going to give it a try, but if it fails, I'm just going to close it and pretend like this never happened. Because, <laughs> yeah, my, my crippling self-doubt is crippling. But, yeah, I'm really glad that I did. And uh, I find a lot of support on Patreon with, like, my creative endeavors, even though it's been really difficult to kind of keep it as lively as I wanted to with all this album release hassle. Of course. But uh, at the same time, it kind of gave me opportunity to share more backstage with uh, the Patreon people and kind of help them, like introduce them a little more to the backstage of what is happening with the band and how much work it takes. So it's a learning curve. It's like a road of discovery of yourself. And uh, I'm very much excited to keep going this road. Yeah, it, it definitely requires you to dedicate even more of your precious time to the fans, I guess. But um, I think I speak for the majority of people there, and, and I must make a disclaimer here that I'm a member of your Patreon as well. Um, the, the point is not about getting access to the exclusive stuff. It's really about the pleasure of helping you succeed in your endeavors. And, and that's ultimately what matters to all of us. Well, thank you. You're welcome. So, as I said, part of the reason that led you to embark on this journey was as a means of supporting a more literal journey, which has to do with moving to the UK. So, why the UK? Was it sort of an obvious choice for you, or have you considered any alternatives? Um, well, I've discovered that it's pretty much the most um, friendly place of all that I've been when it comes to our career. Because our label is based in London and our favorite magazine that keeps writing about us, Prague, is also based there. And the community of like progressive musicians in the UK is very strong mm -hmm. and the genre is very appreciated in, in this country. So yeah. I just thought that this would be a very good decision for me in terms of like the development of my music. But then at the same time, uh, on a personal level, I don't think I would be able to live in the country that speaks a language that I don't know. Right. I would, of course, like if I decided to move somewhere like where people speak some other language, I would learn it. Yeah, you would learn in the end. No, I would, I would like throw all of my efforts into learning as, as quick as possible. But, but to be fluent and to establish like deep contact with other people by means of like verbal connection, you have to study for years and decades. Maybe not so long, but I get your point. I, I don't think I would be able to live in a country that speaks a language that I don't understand as good as I understand English. Mm -hmm. And besides, it's a country of all of my favorite artists. So, mm -hmm. 
in the meantime, you guys are going to be on tour supporting the new album. So what are your plans so far? Are you going to have the whole live ensemble or is it just the two of you this time? It's going to be a little stripped down band. So we are having a percussion with us, which um, Evan Carson, he played on our two latest albums and also is featured on Ocean Sounds and uh, a cello. Okay. Um, so it's going to be a quartet. And I'm very much looking forward to that. We, we are having a few solo shows a festival show in Netherlands and a bunch of gigs supporting Riverside yeah. in September and beginning of October. So we're like working on the pre-production of the tour right now and it's a lot to think about, but it's also very exciting and I'm really happy to be playing our songs to people in real life because we don't really play a lot of gigs, uh, unfortunately. Unfortunately, so. yeah. I, I was just going to say, I mean, I only saw you live once, which is ridiculous. Um, but I, I do get it. I mean, I understand that it's difficult to, to come to more remote places, let's say, like Portugal. Well, we're never invited to Portugal. Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, people keep writing things like, come to Chile, come to Brazil, and why aren't you playing in Poland, and stuff like that. But the problem is they don't understand that this is not the band who decides. I know. It's a booking agency, it's a promoters of the gigs that do that and i would be happy to play anywhere i would love to live in a nightliner for like <laughs> half a year and play everywhere but unfortunately that's not the situation because you would probably regret it in the end but... yes i would 100 <laughs> halfway uh but but the problem with our band is i think we're so niche and we don't really have a lot of kind of promotional support and we definitely do not have money enough to tour so i guess we just have to do Wait and see what is going to happen in the future. Well, I sincerely hope it's going to be a very bright future and that your fantastic new album will be a tremendous success and bring you an even wider recognition. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we wrap this up, I have one last question for you. Is there hope for humankind, do you think? Do I have to answer? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know. I think it depends on us. Hmm. I think it's an open question which is undecided yet and we have to be very careful with how we act in the next decade or like now yep. because everything is on stake and it's a little sad. But also, I guess, be that is as it may. Well, that's a sliver of hope at least. Huh? Russian people, you know, Russian people do not have hope. So... <laughs> Mariana, this was great and a lot of fun. Um, hopefully not too depressing. <laughs> um, so let me just wish you all the best for your future endeavors, which I will keep following very closely. Thank and you. And I hope everyone listening will do the same. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Mariana. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That was a pleasure.
So why do you think Anathema hasn't broken into the mainstream? Should have picked a better name. 